Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. This episode is hosted by guest host and friend Stephen Cap Perry. Steve is host on Classical89.org and the In Good Faith podcast, a married father of four, songwriter, and playwright. He shared his story on episode 586, an episode with over 35,000 listens. For today's episode, Steve interviewed John Gustav Rathel, a dear friend and mentor. John has a powerful story that I encourage all of us to hear, consider, and learn from. John was one of our earliest episodes, episode 49, which we'll link to in the show notes. Thanks, John, for your courage to continue to share your story. I learned so much from you. And thank you, Steve Perry, for being a guest host. This is really an honor, Richard. I love what you have done through the years, and it's been a blessing to so many, including me, to be able to share our stories and be able to find out we're not alone. That's an important part of building community. I spoke to John last August before the Gather Conference here in Provo. I really wanted to sit down in person, face-to-face, and not a phone interview. And I'm so glad I did. He will review some of his early spiritual experiences that gave him a really solid faith in God. And then he takes us on this emotional journey, to me, of listening to the direction of the Spirit and learning how to follow it, even when the inspiration he received was not at all what he was expecting. That's something that happened very clearly at some key points in his life. So I think this is a story about taking a leap of faith, and interestingly, in this case, a leap out, and then many years later, a leap back in, sort of. And I'm really inspired by John's faith. And one thing I think you'll notice is his amazing patience with the process, the journey of life, and his willingness to trust that God has a guiding hand in our lives, even when not everybody understands the journey. I'm speaking today with John Gustav Rathal. Thank you for inviting me. Your home is in Minneapolis. John's a founding member of the Emmaus LGBTQ ministry. He's a published scholar, a teacher in the fields of LGBTQ history and American religion. He's a former president and executive director of Affirmation. And he's active in the Lake Nokomis Ward or Congregation of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He and his husband of almost three decades are the parents of a gay foster son and live in South Minneapolis. But you have a BYU connection, John. I want to I, I want to hit that just briefly. Yeah, sure. I mean, I grew up in the Rochester, New York area, raised by two very devout Latter-day Saint parents. And when I was graduating from high school or getting ready to graduate, my dad said, you're going to go to BYU. And we applied to two universities, BYU and SUNY Buffalo, as a backup, just in case I couldn't get into BYU. And as it turns out, they decided that they wanted to interview me, and I became a Kimball Scholar at BYU. Which is quite an honor. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say I loved BYU. I loved being here. I loved my teachers. I had a great experience with the school, but, you know, not a difficult experience. Um, Which we'll get to in in your story here. Yeah. So do take me back to growing up in your home. You grew up in a church and in a believing home. When did you believe or recognize that you had some sort of connection with the divine? I was very young, and it was 
you know, before I was baptized, I had been reading the Book of Mormon. I remember when my dad sat down with me with the Book of Mormon and we, we read together and he said, he encouraged me to read it on my own. I was probably about seven years old at the time. Mm. And I remember very clearly, first of all, just the feeling that I had as dad and I sat on the couch together and read the Book of Mormon together and just this peacefulness that kind of enveloped me. And dad said, that's the spirit. And I remember sometime later, I had had an experience on my own. And I remember very clearly the moment I walked into the kitchen and said to my mom and dad, I know that God lives. And um, yeah, that was the beginning for me. Can I ask just a little bit more about that? Sure. Like, how did you know or what that experience was? Yeah, I think it was just, it was that this piece that I recognized as very unique. You know, we had a very happy home that we grew up in. We had what I would describe as a peaceful home. (laughs) I was the oldest and typical kid, I guess, and we knew how to have a good time and very active going to church, but I just remember experiencing that this is something unique. This is something different from what I experience day to day, and that has become a touchstone for me in my life. There have been moments when I feel that same peace, and that always stops me. When I feel that, that's always a moment where I say, there's some contact with the divine that's happening here. And having read some of your writings, Sometimes that was directing you to do something that you would not have expected. That came as a big surprise to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this whole other element of faith in acting on that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I began to experience some pretty intense conflict as I got older and became more and more aware of my sexuality. And it took some time for me to sort of piece together what that was. Starting at the age of around 10 or 11, I think I was beginning to be aware of some feelings that I felt embarrassed by and didn't know quite how to deal with that. And it was probably when I was about 14 years old that I looked the word homosexual up in the dictionary and and realized, oh, that's that's what I am. That was... And it sounds like you already had some sort of judgment about that. Oh, for sure. I mean, I I definitely knew that was something I couldn't talk to people about. I didn't talk to anybody about. But I started to do my own research, and I read The Miracle of Forgiveness by Spencer W. Kimball, and that one chapter really kind of marked me. And I think at the time I felt kind of hopeful when I read it because I thought, okay, if I just do things right, that it'll fix this. So that was kind of my... If I try hard enough, struggle hard enough, pray hard enough. You know, and it wasn't even so much a hard enough thing. It was kind of like, get up in the morning and read the scriptures and pray and, you know, serve faithfully in, in any calling that you have in the church and... You know, it was just like, do all the things that that you're supposed to do, and the Lord is going to bless you, and, and this will be taken away from you eventually, because, of course, it's the Lord's intention that I, that I marry a woman and have a family, and so 
And nothing really changed as far as that went. And I, I was patient. I thought, okay, on the Lord's timetable. I think I had it in my head, like, when I serve a mission, that's when the Lord is going to fix this because I really need to, you know, have this be gone in order to be a good missionary. And I remember my first night in the mission field and just realizing this isn't going away. I was very attracted to my first companion. Where did you serve? In the Swiss Geneva mission. Mm. And my first assignment was in Toulon, France. And I remember after... We did a scripture study together, and he went to bed, and I went to bed, and I was just crying. And I got out of my cot, I knelt down, and I poured my heart out to the Lord, and I said, Lord, I, I don't think I can be a missionary. I think I'm going to have to call the mission president and tell him I need to go home. And, um, and that peace that I had recognized from the time I was seven years old was there. And I felt the Lord speaking to me and saying, you can do this and I'll be with you. And I was like, oh, (laughs) okay. Um, And, you know, so that gave me the confidence that I needed And I just kind of like put those feelings aside and I said, okay, I'm just going to focus on doing the Lord's work and being a good missionary and bringing the gospel to the people of France and Switzerland. So that, you know, that worked pretty well for me. But then I got home from my mission and then I thought, okay, Lord, I was able to pull this off as a missionary, but now I'm supposed to get married and have a family So you've got to come through for me now. (laughs) Literally the first words out of my BYU bishop's mouth when I met him after I started at BYU again after my mission were, well, you finished your mission, so now your first duty is to get married and start building a family. And uh, I thought, yeah, I know, I know. And that was when things started to get really difficult. BYU was a fantastic learning experience for me. At the time that I came to BYU, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to study history. And then I was so inspired by some of the professors that I met at BYU in the history department that I thought, I want to be a church historian. I want to study and I want to teach the history of the church because I think that's one of the most important stories that can be told. So that was kind of my my ambition, but I was struggling increasingly with depression because of this conflict around my sexuality and just not knowing what to do with it and it not going away and not being fixed. And by the end of my junior year at BYU, I was in real trouble. I was in the kind of trouble that is life-threatening. That summer, I went home with the intention of never coming back to anything. Mm. And I had a plan, and I just, I knew how I was going to do that. And I mean, to get to that point, something's going on, obviously, psychologically, but 
have you ever been able to pinpoint, because this is a common thing yeah. that this conflict causes, what what is it about that yeah. that causes that depression? Well, and that? Th- so there was a moment I was called by a member of the bishopric in my ward. They said, we, we want to call you to be a ward clerk, I think, or something like that. And so they said, we want you to come in for an interview. And it was one of the counselors in the bishopric. And so he did this worthiness interview that was really like, it was like, he was like, are there any issues that you feel you need to talk to the bishop about? Like, if not, you've got the calling, just, you know, go and we'll, we'll go forward. I said, actually, I do think I need to talk to the bishop. So I met with the bishop and I told him I'm really struggling with masturbation. And he said, he said, well, hand me your temple recommend. So I gave him my temple recommend. And he said, we're not going to be extending you a calling at this time. And he said, I'd like to ask you to stop taking the sacrament until you've been masturbation free for at least four months. So for listeners, this temple recommend allows you to go to an LDS temple, That's which is right. not like our, our chapels that are open for everyone, but it's sort of for the higher ordinances. You wouldn't be able to participate in those. Right. I wouldn't be able to go to the temple. And I think more importantly, it's just kind of, for a lot of people, it's a symbol of their, their worthiness. Yeah. And then not to participate in communion or the sacrament. Right. And I was feeling pretty desperate at that point. And I... I said to him, well, you know, how do I overcome this? And he said, just get married as soon as you possibly can. Hmm. And I said, okay. I got up. I walked out of that room and I thought, I'm never going to be worthy again in my life. And that was... That was kind of when I went over the edge, and then it was just like so downhill. And, you know, being in depression like that, you're kind of in this dark pit. I was in a place now where I couldn't reach out to anybody. I was hoping for somebody to reach out to me and save me, but nobody did. That summer, I had an internship in Finland that was organized through BYU. Fortunately... I didn't have an opportunity to carry out this plan that I'd had. So I ended up having to go on this internship. And so I I was in Helsinki, Finland. It was there that I got on my knees and I I was able to pray again because during much of the, the depression, I just had lost the ability to even pray. I got on my knees and I felt the Spirit saying, pray because I hadn't prayed in months. And I got on my knees and I said to the Lord, if you want me to pray, I have to be honest. I have to just tell you what's in my heart. And I'm gay. And I don't know what to do about this. And that peace that I was telling you about that I had recognized from the time I was seven years old. That peace was there. And I felt the Lord speaking to me and saying, 
I know you from your inmost being. I know this about you, and you're okay. You are okay. That was the first time that I knew that I didn't need to change this about myself, that changing this about myself was not something that the Lord wanted me to do or needed me to do. And that was a surprise to me. Something you'd never heard before. Something I had never heard before. And that was the beginning of a sort of upward, <laughs> like that was what cured me of the depression. I knew I was okay. I knew the Lord knew me from my inmost being and knew all about this and he was okay with it. So for the first time I could kind of breathe. So later that summer, toward the end of that internship, I began to feel a prompting from the Spirit that, again, surprised me a lot. And that prompting was, you need to leave the church for a while. And I was like, no, this, there's, there's no way that this is a prompting from the Lord. There's just no way. You know, I had always felt like if I ever left the church, I, I would be so unhappy. Things would be terrible. And, and I thought, I need the church. I, I, I can't leave the church. But that prompting, it was persistent. It kept coming and kept coming. And finally, I said, okay, I'm going to need to do some fasting and praying about this. So I began a fast and I began to pray. And at the end of my fast, I had a pretty incredible experience. I sat down at my desk and I was going to pray. And I had kind of an out-of-body experience. I literally felt myself rising up, rising up, rising up. And the next thing I knew, I was in heaven. And I recognized people there that I knew, that I knew from pictures, ancestors of mine and family. And they were all dressed in white and they were standing around the throne of God. And I heard a voice speak to me and say, you can do this and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to take care of your family. And when I came out of it, I was like face down on the desk <laughs> and I thought, okay, the Lord wants me to leave the church for a while. And so I, I wrote a letter to my parents and I wrote a letter to my bishop. And I, I said, I need, to, I need to resign from the church. And that began a journey that was really painful in a lot of ways and very difficult for my family, certainly. They didn't understand what was going on. Eventually, I came out to my parents and then they understood a little bit better like mm. what had been going on for me all this time. And after I left the church, I still carried all of this stuff about being gay. And I was certain that like acting on that would never be acceptable. But when I left the church, it was like this huge burden had been lifted from me because I no longer felt like I needed to get married to a woman. Because that was the thing that had really just kind of like doing that was just something that I don't know how to describe it other than that 
just viscerally to me, like at a visceral level, I knew this was wrong for me. And to feel all of this pressure, like you have to do this if you want to be exalted, if you want to go to heaven and experience yeah. the, the, the highest joys of heaven. And I became active in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America and became, I described myself as a mere Christian. I didn't think that any one sect had it, but I believed that to the to the extent that the teachings of Jesus Christ were there, that that was where I needed to be. But I just felt this huge like burden lifted, like people weren't pressuring me to get married. And, and it was actually, I eventually came out to my pastor. And again, the option of like being celibate was such a relief to me. Hmm. I still saw there as basically like two paths for me. One was that I was going to just be celibate and it was just going to be me myself and I and the Lord for the rest of my life. <laughs> or maybe I was going to marry a woman, like maybe. So I was at the Lutheran campus ministry one day. This is at the University of Minnesota. And this friend of mine, who a woman friend of mine, who'd, uh, whom I'd actually dated quite a bit, no spark for me at all, but you know, I dated just because I was trying to figure this out. And she was reading from Dear Abby, which was an advice column. I don't even know if Dear Abby is still around. but And the, the letter said, Dear Abby, I am married. I'm a pillar in my church community. We have three children. And my life is a shambles. My marriage is in ruins because I'm gay. And I don't know what to do. And... I think Abby said something to the effect of to thine own self be true. You know, if you if this marriage isn't working and you're gay, maybe the thing to do is to end the marriage. I, I don't particularly remember very well what Abby said, but what I thought was that could be me in 10 years. Right. And I thought, I don't want to be that guy in 10 years. And so I went on another fast. And I said to the Lord, and this time I was very serious. I said, Lord, I'm not going to eat food until I have an answer to this question. And the question is, should I be celibate for the rest of my life or should I try to marry a woman and see if that can work? So I began to fast. That fast extended into day three. And I remember very clearly the moment when I got the answer to that question. I was crossing this bridge that goes between the East Bank and the West Bank of the University of Minnesota, crossing the Mississippi River. And I was about halfway across that bridge. And the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And what the Lord said to me is, you haven't considered all your options. I was like, celibacy. <laughs> marriage to a woman, there's only one other option that I can think of. Is the Lord telling me to consider a same-sex relationship? So I took that. I accepted it as an answer from the Lord, but I took it very literally. The Lord said, you haven't considered all your options. 
So I thought I need to explore more what celibacy is about. So that following Sunday, I wrote to a former investigator of mine in France who, after I had returned from my mission, he had joined a monastic order called the Order of St. John, the Brotherhood of St. John. And I wrote him a letter. We didn't have email back in those days. <laughs> it, was, it was back in those days. I wrote him a letter and I said, Dear Jean-Marie, I would like to come stay at the monastery where you live and learn about celibacy. He wrote me back and he said, I spoke to the director of our order and he said that you're most welcome to come here as long as you're willing to follow all the rules that we have to follow. And I said, I wouldn't have it any other way. So I arranged to fly to France and took the train to Le Creusot and monks met me at the train station and brought me to the monastery and I lived like a monk for the summer. And I remember I spoke to Brother Thomas who was kind of overseeing that particular, that this, this order had several monasteries throughout France and, and this was the one where my friend was staying. And I remember talking to Brother Thomas and, and he said, I've told the monks that normally they keep silence. And there's one day of the week on Sunday, we have a meal. They have a vegetarian diet most of the time, but on Sunday, they get a piece of meat, they get a glass of wine, they get a piece of chocolate for dessert, and they're allowed to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I said, okay. But he said, the, the monks have been given permission. If you have any questions, you can ask them. So I lived at the monastery, and I asked lots of questions, and I... I had lots of time for prayer and reflection and meditation. At first, it almost kind of drove me crazy, you know, all of the silence and all of the constant prayer. But then I'd say about after three or four days, I just kind of settled into this. It was beautiful. Mm. It was like this beautiful experience. I loved that time that I had in the monastery. It was just there was this peace. We worked on a farm. We grew potatoes. We were studying Isaiah. We were being taught by a Jew who had converted to Catholicism and who was a biblical scholar and who had become a Dominican monk. And then he joined this order. And he was the most incredible teacher. I had the most incredible lessons on Isaiah with him. He would open the Hebrew Bible and he would read to us out of the Hebrew Bible and then we'd translate together and we'd talk about what these, what these prophecies mean, what this text means. And uh, it was powerful. That experience was beautiful. And by the end of the summer, I met with my friend Jean-Marie and he said, do you know what you're going to do now? And I said, yeah, I know. This is a beautiful place. And I said, if I could be celibate for the rest of my life, this is where I'd want to be. But this is not where I'm supposed to be. This is not where the Lord wants me. And so I came back and I thought, okay, I think I'm supposed to be open to this. And I began to date men. And that was a very powerful experience too. And it was a really beautiful experience. And again, I... I began to feel this sort of harmony between my body and my spirit that I had never felt before. 
I met my my husband in 1991, and I had been at that point. I had been sort of dating men for I guess about two or three years, and had never really met anybody who felt like the right one for me. And I met Euron, and we dated for a while, and then we broke up. And then there came this point where I felt the spirit, and I felt this peace. And I was like, I'm supposed to be with him. He's the person I'm supposed to be with. And so we we did that. <laughs> we, he was really happy. He told me that he knew I was the one right from the first moment we met. But uh, Euron and I made a happy life together. We eventually bought a home together. We eventually became foster parents together. But about 13 years into our relationship, which is now going on, we just celebrated our 32nd anniversary. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. But about 13 years into that relationship, I had another disquieting spiritual experience. I was in Salt Lake City. I had traveled to Utah to visit my parents who lived down in Springville. Um, It was the first time that I had been in Utah since I had resigned from the church. And it was kind of an overwhelming experience to me. And I wanted to meet with one of my former BYU professors who had had such an influence on me and who had inspired me to become a historian and a historian of religion. By then, I was, you know, had finished my PhD in American religious history, and I wanted to meet up with him. And he said, well, meet me at the Sunstone Conference. And so I went to the—it's a gathering of Latter-day Saints. It's not sponsored by the church, but they sort of wrestle with issues related to faith and a whole bunch of other disciplines. So I came to the Sunstone Conference, and I attended a few sessions, and there was nothing really special about— those sessions that I attended at Sunstone. But I was sitting in this room with a bunch of Latter-day Saints, and all of a sudden, there was the Lord present through the Holy Spirit in a way that I had not at that point experienced in 20 years. It was so powerful, and it was unmistakable. It was immediately recognizable to me. And the Lord said to me, it's time to come back. It's time to come back to the church. And I remembered something that I had forgotten, which is that when the Lord told me I needed to leave the church, it was for a time. Mm -hmm. It was always for a time. And I had forgotten that until this moment. (laughs) The Lord said, it's time to come back. I was angry. I cried. And this is one thing I tell people, like some people ask me, like, how do you tell the difference between the spirit and your feelings? And that experience taught me a lesson about how you tell the difference between the spirit and your feelings, because my feelings were I was pissed off. I was really (laughs) angry and I was distressed. I was crying. I was like, Lord, you can't possibly ask me to do this. There's too much water under the bridge. They don't want me. There's not a place for me in that church. I'm gay. I'm in a 
13-year relationship with my husband, whom I love, and I have no desire to leave him. But that was the message from the Lord, and I could feel it like in the midst of that emotional turmoil, the anger, the upset, the confusion, that peace was present. And it was so powerful. It was like more powerful than I'd ever felt it before. It was like the Lord was saying, this is really important. You need to hear what I'm saying, and it's time for you to come back. And I just didn't know what to do. Like, I knew that I'd had this experience. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I couldn't talk to anybody about it. I couldn't talk to my parents about it. Like, they had finally made their peace with me leaving the church. I was like, what's this? That I can't talk to them about this. I can't talk to my husband about this. I, can't, I couldn't talk to anybody. I just, like, took that spiritual experience, and I was like, I don't know what to do with this, so I'm just going to, like, pretend it didn't happen for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) So I go back home to Minnesota, and I'm just— I'm thinking of Jonah running away from his assignment, but I have never heard in the scriptures. I'm just going to pretend this never happened. (laughs) Right. I so you know I go home I I was just I mean I was like literally I'm not going to talk to anybody about this if I don't tell anybody then it's you know so I'm just minding my own business I go back home to Minnesota and I remember I you know I just all of a sudden the spirit is speaking to me and saying John it's time to come back and I was like you're crazy this is this isn't no no and this was the this was the conversation that I was having with the Lord for a month. And this would happen periodically. You know, this this quiet voice of the Spirit would come to me and it would say, It's time to come back. And I'd be like, I can't do this. And that but then I'd be like, Well, can I? Like, how would this work? And like, what what are you asking me? Like finally one day, and I again I have this clear, clear memory. I'm up on our sun porch lying in the hammock, and the Lord starts saying to me, You've got to come back. And this time the Spirit said to me, All I'm asking you to do is come back to church. I'm not asking you to make any grand gestures. I'm not telling you to leave your husband. I'm not telling you just come back. Just come back. That's all I'm asking you to do. And for me, that was a very, like, Naaman-esque moment. You know, the the story of Naaman who goes to the prophet and says, tell me what to do so I can be healed of my leprosy. And he gets mad because the prophet tells him to go wash himself in the river. And then the servant says, if he had asked you to do some great thing, would you have done it? And here the spirit was saying to me, I'm just asking you to do something simple, just something simple. And so I was like, okay. Okay, I can do this. So I I came back. I started attending church and it's been kind of a journey since then and you know, I have learned so much. You know, I remember meeting with my bishop for the first time and it was a powerful moment for me. He put his arms around me, he hugged me, he prayed with me. He said, "You're the fulfillment of prophecy." And I said, what do you mean? And he said, in the book of Joel, the Lord prophesied that in the last days he would pour his spirit out on all flesh. And he's poured his spirit out on you. A gay man in a relationship with a man, the Lord has poured his spirit out on you and he's brought you back. You're the fulfillment of prophecy. 
And he, you know, he said, I can't baptize you as long as you are with your husband. But he says, I, I know your relationship with your husband is important. I'm not going to tell you to leave your husband, but live the gospel the best you can. Live the gospel as much as you can. So I was like, I can do that. Like, I can do that. And so the best that I can is to be active in my ward and to, to serve people and to study the scriptures daily and to, to pray and to, you know, do everything that I possibly can. If the Spirit tells you to do it, then do it. Try it. See what happens. If there are things in your life that are interfering with your ability to feel the Spirit, then stop doing them. And if there are things that bring more of the Spirit into your life, do it. Follow those things. Stay away from the stuff that cuts you off and, and get closer to the things. And I just had this clear sense, I need to walk with the saints. I'm not a member of the, of the church. I'm, I'm not a baptized member of the church. And that's been a struggle for me. You know, there have been times when, you know, we'll have a Sunday school lesson about the gate. <laughs> Baptism is the gate. And I'd be like, here I am, Lord, I'm still at the gate. I can't go through. And it's been distressing to me. Like I'd pray about it and I'd be like, am I supposed to leave my husband? Like, am I supposed to just do this thing? And But it's clear to me that I'm not, that that's not, that's not what the Lord wants me to do. So I have this incredible ward. I have these people who are just amazing. I have all these people who are, tell me, like, you must be in the most liberal ward because you're gay. You're open about being gay. They welcome you. They welcome your husband. And I'm like, mm, you don't know these people. They're not particularly liberal. They're very conventionally conservative Latter-day Saints. They, you know, they live the gospel that I grew up with. They believe in it all. Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, the Golden Plates, all of it. I believe it too. I feel the spirit when I read these stories. And it's not that they're particularly liberal. It's just that they love people. And it's like they live the gospel. You know, I tell my story to people in Salt Lake. I've met with... The, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve, and I've met with people at church headquarters in my capacity as president of Affirmation. And now when we started this Emmaus LGBTQ ministry, I met with a, again with the same member of the Quorum, and I told him this is what we want to do. We want to do ministering to and with LGBTQ people in the church and adjacent to the church. We know there are people in the church who are hurting, and we know that there are people who've left the church who are hurting, and we want to do ministry to and with these people, and we want to help them see Christ walking with them. That's why we call it Emmaus Ministry, because of that story about how Christ can be walking with us and we don't even recognize it. Yeah. And we want to help people see that Christ is walking with them. And, you know, I told him, this is what we want to do, and he said, you have my blessing. Nobody else is doing this work. We need people to do this work. But when I've told church leaders about my ward and how they've treated me and how they've welcomed me and my husband, they always say the same thing. They say, we would that every congregation in the church was like yours. 
We wish that everyone would do this. They've told me, keep doing what you're doing. Just follow the Spirit. This apostle, the first time I met with him, he laid his hands on my head and he gave me a blessing and he said, he blessed me that I would continue to feel and follow the Spirit in my life. So that's all you can do. And I, I've seen the trauma that people have been through in the church around this issue. And I've seen the effects of that trauma. And it's not pretty. It's, I feel a lot of conflict about that. So I say that, I preface what I'm about to say with that, which is that I love this church and I love the people of this church. And the people don't always understand and they make a lot of assumptions about this and that. And, you know, they say things or do things that they probably shouldn't because they don't understand. But what I've learned is that the church teaches us a kind of discipline that enables us to love and serve in a way that is unparalleled in any other church setting that I've ever experienced. And so when a Latter-day Saint finally understands the experience of one of their LGBTQ brothers or sisters, and they get in that person's camp, you can't have a better ally. You can't have a better friend. The church helps people do that. It helps people love in a sacrificial way. I really believe that. I, I feel that the discipline that the church teaches us is so important because it's hard to serve unless there's going to be situations where you can't help somebody unless you're willing to make a really painful sacrifice. That just happens sometimes. And we need to learn how to do that. I think the church teaches us how to do that. The love that Christ teaches us isn't a sentimental thing. It's a very practical thing. The love of Christ is always teaching us to look at people and say, what does that person really need? And what can I do to help meet that need? And maybe, or who can I help connect that person to? Or what, you know, who do we need to talk to? What do we need to do differently? Like once you have that mandate to love and you see things, it's not sentimentality. It's just, let's, let's help people. And, in, you know, in the process, we have to learn how to be the best version of ourselves. And that's a blessing. I've been blessed by my association with the church. The church has forced me to stretch in ways that I wouldn't. I've been talking for a long time. I don't know if you had any you, questions. but just fine. I had a great experience that was very instructive to me where I went to my dad's ward. We went to Sunday school and there was an individual, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but the, this individual engaged in what, what I would describe as an anti-LGBTQ tirade in Sunday school. And I knew that people knew that my dad had a gay son. And I think people knew that my brother Mark was not the one who was gay, <laughs> <laughs> right? So I thought maybe this tirade was for my benefit. And so I was just like getting ready to get out of my seat and walk out. Just as I was about to get up and leave my seat, like I was literally just like lifting myself up, like there was air between my butt and the cushion of the seat. <laughs> the spirit like stopped me and the Lord spoke to me and the Lord said, I'm so proud of you. 
you are where you need to be. And these people don't know you. They don't know who you are. They don't know what your story is. Don't listen to this. And it was like all this tension, all this upset that was animating me to get out of my chair. And I just melted. I, I went right back into my chair and I was like, oh, okay. After that lesson ended, my mother turns to me and she's like, do we need to leave? Like her hand had been clutching mine so tight that her knuckles were turning white. She was so worried. Mm. And I said, mom, the Lord spoke to me. I'm okay. I don't need to go anywhere. I, I want to stay. So my dad is like, do you want to go to priesthood meeting with me? And I said, yeah, let's go to priesthood meeting. So we go to priesthood meeting. And who should be teaching the lesson but the guy who went on the tirade in Sunday school? So I was like, okay, this will be an interesting lesson. The gist of the lesson was it takes a few minutes to perform all of the saving ordinances of the church, baptism, ordination, endowments, etc. It takes a few minutes to perform all of those ordinances, saving ordinances. But it takes a lifetime to become Christ-like. And that lesson was, that changed my life. I was like, here I am. I can't get baptized. But this brother just taught me, the Lord can do that at any time. What I need to spend my time and energy doing is being as Christ-like as I can be. And that's going to take the rest of my life. And if I don't start working on it now, I'm going to be in trouble <laughs> when the ordinance time comes, right? Because I need my life to do that, to become that. It's going to take my life to do that. So I better start spending my life now being, being like Jesus. So that has been a comfort to me, and it's, and it's been a powerful thing. And I was taught that lesson by a person that I thought hated me. And many years later, I know this brother. He doesn't hate me. He learned. He, he recognized that what he had said that day was wrong. And I lived to see him apologize for it. And I lived to see him get up in a priesthood meeting in that same ward and say, we have done our LGBTQ brothers and sisters so wrong. We need to do better. I got to witness him say that, teach that in a lesson after going on an anti-LGBTQ tirade. And so I know the Lord can change hearts. And I've seen it. And I, I'm so glad I learned this lesson from him. And I think he's learned some things from me. And I'm so glad. And I've been able to do that so many times with so many people in the church. My ward is so precious to me because I've had countless experiences where we've taught each other. And they don't, like, they don't look at me and say, oh, here's John who's not baptized. I'm part of the community. I'm, I'm one of them. And they, they just recognize that there are difficult circumstances in life sometimes. And so things don't always work out ideally. But we can cope with that as a church, right? And we can cope with that as individuals. And so I pray for the church. I, I pray for us to be like the most loving group of people that we possibly can be and to serve and to learn that discipline and to learn the lessons that all of the rules in the church are supposed to teach us. Because I think once we learn that lesson about sacrificial love and, and once we learn 
how we can get to that point where we can give something up to help somebody else, then it's like training wheels, you know. And isn't that what Paul taught, right? Like the law is there to teach us. It's a schoolmaster to us. It's to get us to that point where we can live that law of sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. So that's what we think about, you know, the rules. If it offends a brother to eat something, then don't eat it. <laughs> it's not that the Lord is saying you can't eat it. You can eat it. The Lord says you can't eat it. But think about your brother. You know, think about what's going to help them. And if it offends him, then you can do without it. Right? So those are the things that Christ calls us to do. And I've learned that because of the church. And so I'm grateful. And I say that knowing that the church has hurt a lot of people really profoundly. And there's a lot of people who are suffering. And and there's a lot of people, you know, I just met with a friend who just gets like, you can't talk about the church in front of her because she gets agitated. She gets upset. It, it hurts. Like there, the pain is just still really, there are too many of those like tirades that happen where whoever's there doesn't have that experience that I had. They just feel the hurt. They just feel the like, you don't belong here. There's just so much of that and too many people who are hurting because of that. So we need to do better than that. And that's, you know, that's what I want to like spend most of the rest of my life doing is just helping us to, to do that and to get there and to be that. John, as you've been talking and sharing stories, of course, I've, I've had a million questions, but <laughs> in almost every case, you've come around and actually answered them. <laughs> right. I think it was really telling several of these sort of signpost moments when you really knew that you were receiving heavenly communication. And one of them, you say, was crossing this bridge in the middle of the bridge, which yeah. is this interesting image to me because you're kind of, in some ways, not on one side or the other. You're kind of in the middle and God still talks to people who are in the middle of a bridge. I've often thought about that. I was like, why did the Lord speak to me right there? And that Im image of me being in the middle of that bridge has always struck me. Um, and, you know, it just occurred to me that, you know, a lot of my life has been about building bridges. So... And if people are interested in knowing more about the Emmaus LGBTQ ministry, where do they go? Um, we have a website, uh, EmmausLGBTQ.org. Um, so that's a good place to start. And we have a we have a Facebook community. We're very disciplined in terms of our moderation of the Facebook community. A lot of Facebook groups are places where people just kind of like, blah, you know, share whatever. And this group is more about how do we disseminate some best practices in terms of ministering? And there are some really good things that are happening in the church now, and there's bishops and stake presidents and Relief Society presidents and stake presidents who are organizing programs to be more supportive of LGBTQ individuals within their charge. We want to disseminate, like whenever something good happens, we want people to know about it. And our philosophy and this is why I think this works so well, is that we want people to work with their local church leaders. So like if you've got an idea for ministry, you go to your bishop or you go to your stake president or your Relief Society president or whoever, and you say, can we do this? And our program as Emmaus <laughs> is if your bishop says, uh, we're not ready for that yet, then do what your bishop is ready to do. Take whatever that next step is within your congregation or 
or your larger area, your grouping of congregations, your stake. We call it a stake in the in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But whatever level of leadership you're working with or wherever you are, work with your leaders and take whatever next step you can. We're all like ministering brothers and sisters, right? So like when President Nelson started talking about we're doing ministering now, that's what we call it. And I remember sitting down with my bishop and he said to me, well, the way I understand it, you can be a minister, right? I'm not a formal minister, but I think what President Nelson was telling us is look around you, see who needs help, see who you can minister to. I can do that, right? So we can all do this ministering. And so start ministering to the people around you and talk with your church leaders and talk with other people in your congregation. And good things are happening because people are doing that and we can do it. And I think it's just so important for us to be in this together. And that's why, you know, it's just my heart aches when I see people become allies and then get impatient and angry and leave the church because the church isn't moving fast enough for them or, or not moving the way they would like to see it move. And it breaks my heart because I think here's somebody who their eyes have been opened, they see the hurt, they know the hurt needs to be healed, and they're in a position where they can start to heal that in some really important ways. And there's healing that has to happen in a whole bunch of different settings. And I don't want to tell anybody I mean, for heaven's sake, you know, I left the church for 19 years and, and followed, followed a prompting of the Spirit to do that. So I don't want to tell anybody, like, you have to stay in the church. That would be kind of hypocritical for me to say that. But I want to say, if you can stay in the church and if the Lord isn't telling you to leave, please do, because we need you. You know, we need your heart. We need your love. We need your open eyes. We need your open ears. And I know people are hurting out there, but... I hear all the same bullshit that you do. So if you can stay and if I can stay, I think you can too, especially if you're an ally. I think it's different when you're LGBTQ and you're exposed to stuff that's just really wounding you over and over and over again. And, and there I'm going to say, you don't need to stay and be punished. But see, here's the thing I'll say about that is we can become a resilient people. My LGBTQ brothers and sisters we can learn to, I, I think that if we can find that connection, that divine connection where somebody says something, but we know because we know the Lord and the Lord knows us. And so that stuff just won't affect us in the same way if, if we can get into that space. And I realize it's not, it's easier said than done. I know it's easier said than done because I've witnessed just, you know, the trauma that I've witnessed has been so intense for so many people. But it sounds like having a grounding in a relationship with God as sort of a, a solid place to work from can help those other kind of winds that may come not topple you. 100 percent. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think I always try to be careful when I talk about that because I don't want people to feel like, you know, you're experiencing this incredible pain and trauma and it's so bad you feel like you need to leave. And I don't want to add to that a layer of guilt of, oh, if you had a better relationship with God, you could stay. <laughs> That's your problem. Right, yeah. right. Like, it's not that. But 
Well, I think a helpful way to look at it is that I have a relationship with God that I built over the course of 20 years outside of the church. It was a relationship that I built with God for 13 years in the church and then for 14 years in the church and then for 20 years out of the church. So a relationship with God maybe takes us some time to develop. And so there's no guilt if you're not, you know, if you, I've had plenty of people who say to me like, you know, how do you know when you're feeling the spirit or, or I, they'll say like, I don't feel the spirit. Like I've never had that experience like what you describe when, when you talk about what it's, what it's been like for you and you feel the spirit. Like is something wrong with me? I actually kind of want to talk about this at the Gather Conference that's coming up this weekend because I, I had an image that came to my mind where I was riding my bike to a friend's house to feed her cat because she's out of town and some of the roads are well lit and others aren't. When I was in the ones that weren't, sometimes I'd hit a pothole and have, <laughs> you know, almost have a bike accident. And this, these words came into my mind that said, stay in the light as much as you can, but be careful when you can't. And I think if we can walk in the light of the Spirit and if we feel that inspiration and it's guiding us and it's helping us, let's stay in that light as much as possible. But I go through times in my life when I don't really feel the Spirit. I've gone through cycles of depression that I've had to work through, and sometimes you just feel numb, and sometimes you don't feel. But God gives us a brain and a heart, and so in those times when we don't feel that light, when we can't walk in the light, let's be careful. Let's just be attentive and do the best you can. So I think that's that would be my advice now. <laughs> All right. I want us to help each other be resilient. If an LGBTQ person is hurting, let me comfort you, you know, let, and know that you're okay. Like, I know you're okay. Sometimes part of the reason we hurt so bad is because we're not sure we're okay. We think something might be wrong with us, and that's why it hurts so bad sometimes. That's why it hurts so bad for me, because I thought something was so wrong with me, and why I, there was a point in my life where I didn't want to live anymore. So sometimes we just don't know we're okay, but I know you're okay. And I've been walking in this path for so many years, right? 32 years with my husband and, you know, what, 53 years with the Lord, <laughs> right? Like, we're okay. We're okay. We're good. We're good. We're okay. And you can be happy. Like, there's happiness for you. You can be happy. You can be gay and be and be happy. You can be trans and be happy. Like, and I know this, and you might not know this, but I know this. I think that's a great place to press pause with that thought in mind. I think my favorite thing about speaking with you today is how much we got to hear from you and share your life wisdom. I'm really honored that you would take the time to share with us, and thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. 